Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. We're starting a series today that, to a certain degree, may um, make you feel like you've been dropped into a seminary class. But before you make that a negative thing in your mind, the, the kind of stuff that we're going to focus on over the next few weeks uh, is things that we really need to know. Because in the culture that we live in, you're going to have from time to time friends, maybe family members, acquaintances. And if the topic of the Bible comes up, you need to be able to say why you believe the Bible beyond just saying, well, I believe the Bible is true because the Bible says it is. Now, that can be a partial valid reason. That's what we're going to talk about today. A lot of times people say, well, I believe the Bible because it changed my life. Well, that's great. But for someone that has a secular mindset, that doesn't change their opinion. And that's why over the next few weeks, we're going to approach some logical arguments that can help us understand or help us defend or help us share with other people why we can trust the Bible, why the Bible is true. I'm afraid a lot of times as some of us who grew up in church, we just take it for granted that the Bible's true. And, and we don't go beyond that to where we can actually try and defend the Bible. Some of you in your uh, small groups, not all of our small groups, but some of the small groups are studying uh, a book by Erwin Lutzer. Erwin Lutzer, I don't think he still is. Uh, I'd have to check up on that. But he was the pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, which, of course, is a very prestigious place to be. That's the church that Dwight L. Moody started. He also was the chancellor of uh, Moody Bible Institute. So he wrote a book by this title, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. And I'm going to use the titles from his chapters, but I'm not going to just come and, and read the book to you because that would uh, be counterproductive. You can do that yourself. I'm going to try and expand and give, give other things. But we need to understand why the Bible is true. We, we need to recognize it in our culture, not just today, but it has been for years, that the Bible's under attack. Because if Satan can attack the validity of the Bible in people's minds, then it's easy to lead them on down another erroneous path and another erroneous path to take them further and further away from the place that, that God would want them to be uh, in their life and both in eternity. We need to understand that as Christians, we need to hold the, the Bible up. We need to understand the very battle of our culture today and for our children and for our families and even for our churches is based upon the truthfulness of the Bible. That's how important it is. Because if we just let the Bible somehow to be taken away or minimized or disproved and people start to doubt it, then that affects massive amounts of our culture. And without a return to the scriptures, we may never turn the thing around. And that's why we need to understand foundationally that the Bible's true. Erwin Lutzer in his book talks about how people with a secularist mindset divide truth or maybe their worldview into two main categories. One is scientific knowledge. And that's the category that they will bow and they'll worship at and they'll hold to be completely true as factual evidence. But the other worldview that seculars want to consider, they want to push everything either into secular knowledge or everything into values. Now, values might not sound too bad for us, but they're not using the word value in the same way you and I as Christians would use the word value because they consider value just being personal preferences or subjective choices. It's not value based upon what the Bible teaches and not morality based upon what the Bible teaches. It's just something that, you know, whatever you believe is fine, that type of mindset. 
And by them trying to push all worldviews into those two categories, they are trying to take away the place at the table for any debate in our culture that the Bible needs to have. He, he quotes in, in the introduction to the book uh, a lady by the name of Nancy Piercy, and she wrote a book entitled Total Truth. And, and she says this, the, the division that exists between scientific and values is the single most potent weapon for delegitimizing the biblical perspective in the public square. In other words, as long as we allow people in our world to say either everything is scientific knowledge or it's just a personal preference, that's a way that they can delegitimize or trying to say the Bible doesn't really matter. The, the Bible doesn't really have any bearing on our culture and what we believe. She went on to say this, to recover a place at the table of public debate, Christians must find a way to overcome the dichotomy or the separation between public and private, fact and value, secular and sacred. We need to liberate the gospel from cultural capti- captivity, restoring it to the status of public truth. Now, that's an important statement, and that's why we're doing this series. We need to wake up as Christians and recognize the territory that we have actually lost in our world, the territory we have actually lost in our culture by people minimizing the Bible and considering the Bible not really to be true. Instead, it's just something from antiquity that maybe people put together, fables, fairy tales, and things like that. That's what the seculars or the liberal in our culture would like for us to believe. And we need to understand how important it is for our lives as believers to restore the Bible as the Word of God, as absolute truth, both in our own lives and in the public arena. We need to actively teach our children, our families, our friends, and hold up before our churches the Bible as being completely trustworthy and necessary in our total lives. The Bible, yes, it's important in our religious, quote, religious life, but it's important beyond that. The Bible is, is a lot more than, than just some type of, of, of intellectual knowledge to try and throw out there, or just some type of literature. It is something that is really very important that God gave us, that he revealed to us, and the Bible itself claims to be the Word of God. Now, when we use that as an argument for believing the Bible, because the Bible says it's the Word of God, you'll have people who are philosophers or think they're philosophers who will say, well, that's circular reasoning. You can't really depend upon that. In other words, it's not valid to give an argument that you believe the Bible is God's Word because the Bible says it's God's Word. But you see, that type of, that type of evidence rules out what Christianity is to begin with. Christianity is a religion of revelation. We believe God revealed himself to us. There are things that we could not know about God without God revealing them. There, there are multiple things, many things in the Bible that we wouldn't know unless God revealed them. So it is a valid thing to say that the Bible says it's the word of God, that we need to consider the revealed truth of the Bible as evidence. Let me illustrate that by, by myself for a minute. There are things that you could find out about me from investigation. Uh, you could, you know, go and maybe talk to some of our law enforcement officers, have them run a records check on me. And, and there are things you can find out by investigation. There are things that you can find out by investigation, like I used to be a police officer or where I went to high school or uh, where I went to college and, and various things like that that, that you can figure out uh, about me. Uh, you can watch me drive up in the parking lot and figure out what kind of vehicle I drive or what brand motorcycle I ride or whatever the case is that you can kind of investigate. But there are other things about me that you would never, ever know unless I told you. There may be some secrets that I have in my life that no one knows except me, God, and then I have to put Becky in that category too, I guess. But without someone revealing to you secrets about themselves, you could not know it to begin with. So it's an invalid argument for a philosopher to say, well, you can't say you believe the Bible because the Bible says it's the Word of God. That takes away the fact that God is a sovereign God and He can control His Scripture if He wants to. Now, I understand that doesn't matter to them either because they don't believe in God being a sovereign God. 
But I'm simply telling you, most things we know about God, most things we know about creation, most things we know uh, about Jesus, we know it because God revealed it to us and he told us. So it is a valid thing for us to say, I believe the Bible because the Bible says it's the word of God. That's our argument today. We're going to have several other arguments over, over the course of the series. So, so that being said, laying some groundwork, let's look at our first question this morning. Question number one is, is simply this. How can the Bible be the Word of God since it has human authors? Because this is what liberals or, or secularists love to point to and say, well, it can't really be the Word of God because there were men that were used to write it. They, they will argue, how can that be God's Word? Because if a man was used to write it, we know that we all make mistakes. So surely those men must have made mistakes. So how can we say it's really the Bible? Well, see, the Bible also teaches this about itself. And it's a term that theologians call dual authorship, dual authorship. And that means this, that means that God superintended the writing of the scriptures. He used human instruments to write the scriptures, but God himself was overseeing the writing of the scriptures. Now that happens in, in three ways. And we're going to talk about inspiration in a moment, but biblical inspiration happens in these three ways. When you look in the Bible, there are times when God dictated the Bible. For instance, Moses, when he was receiving the Ten Commandments, there are times when God used dictation, when the, when the writer of the Scripture was writing down word for word exactly what God was saying. That's dictation. There are also other types of inspiration in the Bible, such as investigation. Luke would be an example of that, because in the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke himself says, I have investigated these things out thoroughly. I have researched them, and I am writing them in a chronological order so you can clearly understand these things about Jesus. By the way, Luke was a physician, so I'm assuming a physician knows how to investigate something. Amen? So so God was using this physician who he still was superintending what was taking place to where it is God's Word, but the form was not dictation, it was investigation. There's a third type of inspiration that happens in the Bible, and that's human instrumentation. In other words, God used the the human beings. Of course, he did in the other two instances. But what I mean by human human, uh, instrumentation is this. God was using them, their personalities, their background, their experiences. They write maybe from a different flavor, from a different attitude, from a different background, But even though that's the case, and sometimes they even tell personal things about themselves, but even though that's the case, God was still overseeing what they were writing in the Bible. Now, let me use Paul for an instance of that and show a couple of passages of Scripture in in Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's writing about marriage, and he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord... In other words, Jesus didn't exactly verbalize it. Jesus didn't just say this. He said, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. But Paul is saying, Jesus didn't say this, but what I'm writing is still trustworthy because God has led me to write this. Later on the same chapter, he says, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul himself is claiming divine inspiration. So so there are several ways that that God inspired the Bible through those different methods that we see in the Scriptures. Now, to someone that wants to disbelieve the Bible, if their mindset up front is, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe it's God's Word, they will point at dual authorship and also see that's a problem. They'll say that's a problem. You say God was controlling it, but, but man was still involved with it. But once again, they're leaving out the sovereignty of God for God being powerful enough and God having the ability to oversee what man wrote is his word. Now, let me illustrate that for you. Now, once again, you have to be a person of a biblical mindset for this even to matter to you. But think about DNA for a moment. We've done a series before where we talked pretty much all one Sunday about DNA. 
DNA is such a complex written code that it could not happen by evolution. That the study of DNA itself, the presence of DNA since they discovered it, is really enough to where people ought to write evolution off the map. Because DNA is brought about by an intelligent being. So, so here, here's my illustration, my argument t- to you. The same God that intricately wrote the DNA code, that same God can also have his Bible to be written exactly the way he wants it to be written. You think that's a valid argument? So just because God used human beings to write the the Bible doesn't mean that it doesn't have integrity or that it doesn't have truth. Erwin Lester gave what I thought was a really, really wonderful example of the perfection of the Bible uh, by pointing to Jesus. The, The Bible refers to Jesus as the perfect, sinless, living Word of God. The Bible also is the written perfect Word of God. Now think about how those two things need to fit. This, that is God's Word, the Bible, is what reveals to us that Jesus is the perfect, sinless, living Word of God. That being the case, it dictates to us that we need to accept this as the perfect written Word of God because that's what reveals to us about Jesus. And he did a comparison between Jesus and the Scriptures. He said both are eternal. Jesus is eternal. God's Word is eternal. Both were conceived by the Holy Spirit. Both are human yet without error. And both have a unique authority that that you don't find anywhere else. So that's our first question. How in the world can it be the Word of God if there are human authors involved in writing it? And the answer to that is God's the one that superintended it. God inspired them to write it. Well, now we need to find out more about what that means, what inspiration means. So here, here's our second question. Our second question. Uh, what is meant by the infallible inspired Word of God? You, you may hear those, those terms thrown out in, in Christian circles at church where you'll hear someone say infallible, you'll hear someone say inspired or inerrant, whatever the case might be. What is meant by, by those terms when someone says the infallible inspired Word of God. Well, let's talk about inspiration to start with, the inspired Word of God. In in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to young Timothy, who, by the way, is he's mentoring to be a pastor, mentoring to be a missionary, mentoring to be in the ministry. And here's what he tells him about the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped in every good work. So I think word studies mean things, and God used specific words in the Greek New Testament. And here, the word all scripture literally means all, every, the whole, every bit of it, all the holy writings. All of it is inspired by God or breathed out by God. Some translations say inspired. The English Standard Version that I'm reading from this morning use the word breathed out because that's what the word means. It's a, it's a compound word in the Greek that means divinely breathed in or divinely breathed out. Now, now there's a huge implication in, in that definition in what the word means. If God is God, and I believe he is, and I think probably most of you do, but if God is God... That means God is perfect. That means what God breathes out is also perfect. You you see the implication of that? So what God breathed out into these instruments, these human instruments that he used to write the scripture, what God was breathing out to them was, was perfect. Because that's the case, we'll keep reading in some of our word studies, because that's the case, the Word of God, the Bible is profitable. It is something that's helpful or advantageous for our lives. It, it provides the teaching that we need and gives us the ability to teach what we ought to be teaching, the instruction. The Bible gives us reproof. We don't like that a lot of times. Uh, we like to cast that part aside. But the Bible will convict us of our sins, refute us when we are in error, admonish us, rebuke us. The Bible will correct us. It's profitable for correction, a straightening up again. That's what the Bible can, can do for our lives. 
The Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. The, the word is really an education term, tutorage or education or training, even including disciplinary action. It, it is training in a fixed position is what the word in means. The tense of it in the Greek, in a fixed position of righteousness, of Christian justification, of being made right with God. In order that we may be competent. We can exist emphatically to be complete or perfect or mature believers is the point that's being made. Equipped for every good work. God is wanting to finish us up. He's wanting to mature us to where we can carry out the good works that he calls us to do. Now, anytime I mention good works, I always try and throw this in. I don't want anyone being deceived or misled. You don't do good works to be saved. You do good works because you are saved. God equips us through His Holy Spirit where we can be equipped, where we can do the good works that He, that he calls us to do. The Bible is not just for information. You can tell from that passage of Scripture, it's not just for information. Thank God it's infallible. Thank God it was inspired, breathed out by God, but it's not just for information. The Bible is for, I'm going to get Billy to give me the word, application. <laughs> That's a buzzword in our small group. We laugh about it all the time. I think Billy grew up with Bill Sr. telling him application, 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 application. You know, It's more than just for information. We need to apply it to our lives. God doesn't want us to know the Bible just for head knowledge. In fact, I'll take it one step further and I'll try to remember and come back to this near the end of the message. God's word is not just for information. It's for application, but it's also for transformation. God wants to take His Word and transform our lives. You guys pray for me over the next couple of weeks. I've got a really, had really a busy schedule probably for two months now, but uh, I, I have to go um, maybe the 13th or the 16th. I'm hoping I can pull off just going the 15th and the 16th, but they've asked me to, to go teach a class on on, on preaching in a, in a post-Christian culture for new church planners uh, that are getting ready to launch churches. Uh, I'm going to have to go tell them to start with, uh, I don't know why they asked me to do this. You cannot go preach as long as I preach uh, and, and everything, try and convince them of that. Uh, maybe it works here as the way I'm wired or whatever. I'm sorry, it's just the way I'm wired. But I, I'm going to try and be sure they understand this. You're not preaching on Sunday to give out information. You're preaching for transformation in people's lives. That needs to be the goal of what's taking place as, as you proclaim the Word of God. And we need to recognize that it is inspired, but it's inspired for a reason so we can apply it to our lives. It ought to matter in our lives. It ought to matter in our choices. It ought to matter in our world. What about the term infallible? Because people will use that term. The Bible is also the infallible Word of God. I'm going to look at about three different uh, passages of Scripture just to give you some background to that. First of all, in, in Psalm 19, verse 7 and 9, I want you to notice some really important words in, 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 this, in, in just these, these three verses here. The law of the Lord is, what's the word? What does it say? Perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. So in other words, it's not passing away. The rules of the Lord, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Now, at that point in time, just to where I'll be clear with you, and someone won't take off and say, well, I tried to use this scripture in the wrong ways. The New Testament wasn't written. You understand that? <laughs> and, and, and there are other parts of the Old Testament wasn't written. But what David is saying under divine inspiration himself is he's pointing back to the Ten Commandments. He's pointing back to the first few chapters of the Bible. And, and he's saying that it's perfect. It is completely, entirely perfect. It's undefiled. He said it can turn back your soul. It can revive your soul to the starting point that it needs to be with God. Next slide. He said the testimony is, is sure. The testimony of the witness that, that God gives us uh, is there to give us sure support in our lives. The, the term was even used to talk about someone fostering a child like a parent or a nurse. 
And the word of God is there in that capacity in our lives. The precepts of the Lord are, are right. That which God has mandated or appointed, they're, they're straight, they're just, they're right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Uh, a commandment is something where God is constituting or joining us to do what he's telling us to do. And it says those things are pure. They ought to be beloved in choice and clean. The root word means to have clarity and, and brightness and even uh, select in our lives. That's the way we ought to view the, the scriptures. The fear of the Lord is clean. Having this fear, we talked all last week about fear in the Lord. We talked several weeks about reason why we don't have to fear, but there is a proper fear we ought to have, and that's the fear of the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord, the being holding God in that moral reverence, is clean or pure uh, completely. And it says it will endure forever. It will stand for the duration, for the eternity, for everlasting is what the phrase means. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The verdict that God gives, the judgment that God gives, the judicial pronouncement that God gives is stable, it's certain, it's trustworthy. It's right in a moral or a forensic sense in a unit. It's all unified all together. And we'll see the unity of the scriptures in just a minute. But the Bible tells us there that all that all those verses were saying over and over again, God's word is, is right. God's word is true in those three verses. John 17, verse 17. Jesus has given his high priestly prayer. And Jesus says this to the Father. He's talking about his followers. And Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. God the Son looks at God the Father and he says, your word is is truth. Jesus is saying, make them holy. Make them set apart in, in your truth, in a fixed position in your truth. By the way, that word truth means true is not concealing. God, God, God wants you to understand this. <laughs> God wants you to understand who he is. God wants to reveal himself. It's not like God is saying that you got to figure it out. He wants you to know who he is. He wants to reveal truth to you. And then he said, your word, talking to the Father, your own word, the things that you say, the, the subject, the discourse, all that you say, the reason or motives that you have, Father. It even refers to the divine expression of Christ. We talked about him being the living word a moment ago. It said is, it means it exists emphatically as being true. Now, there's an implication here we have to really deal with, a really strong implication. Some people want to have Jesus as the, you know, the nice, peaceful, really, you know, lamb of God, and they get these warm thoughts about him, and, and so, oh, yes, I want to believe in Jesus. But they're not fully believing in the Jesus of the Scriptures. They're saying, I want to believe some in, in, in Jesus. I understand some things about Jesus. I think Jesus is cool and everything like that. But they don't want to believe all the Bible's true. Now, see, here's the problem you have. <laughs> here's the strong implication that comes from Jesus being the one that said this. Either Jesus is God in the flesh and Jesus knows what he's talking about or he doesn't. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot say, well, yeah, I, I want to kind of believe in who Jesus is, but I don't want to believe all the Bible is true because by you taking that stance, you have attacked the very deity of Christ. Because Jesus himself quotes from the Bible and believes the Bible is true. Matter of fact, there'll be one Sunday in this series that we're going to talk about a Christological reason you can believe the Bible. And that's just all we're going to focus on is the fact that Jesus believed the Bible is true. You cannot have it both ways. Jesus is either who he said he is, and he knows what the truth is, or he's a heretic. You can't claim both ways. And the fact that Jesus says this, that Jesus claims that God's word is truth, ought to be evidence for those of us that say we believe in Jesus, that we accept it as God's word is, is, is truth. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. About all I can do is read through this in, in just a minute. Uh, after I read through this and make a couple of comments, I think it may be in your notes also, but there's a link where you can go to YouTube and, and watch a very, very good uh, exposition of this passage of Scripture uh, by Vody Bauckham that's used to, uh, he, he's an apologist, but he's the kind of apologist that, he, you know, he, he's 
kind of more laid back in the way he shares it, uh, instead of a stiff, sharp type of guy, uh, you know, as he's, as he's been an apologist. But let's read this passage of scripture. And then you can go, some of you in your small groups have already watched the video. Some of you haven't. You ought to go watch it if you're not doing it in your small group. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now basically, I'm going to paraphrase that. He's saying we didn't make it up. Not a bunch of fables. A bunch of men getting it together in a dark room and decide they're going to deceive everybody by writing something that claims the Bible. In specific, he's going to address a certain scenario. He said, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born from him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, of which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. That's that divine inspiration again we talked about. Now, now, a couple of things from this passage. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. Now, I've already alluded to the fact when I was talking about myself earlier that I'm former law enforcement. I've been a pastor for 34 years. It's been a long time since I tried a case in law. And sometimes I would convict people by circumstantial evidence. You had enough evidence where you could get a conviction upon them. But I dearly loved it when I had someone to say, I'm an eyewitness. I saw exactly what that person did. All of our law enforcement people said what? Amen. Sure helps out the case, doesn't it? If you've got someone who says, I saw what happened. Just one person doing that in a court of law, unless somehow they can refute his testimony, just one eyewitness is enough to seal the deal on someone being tried in a court of law. Now, we've got more than one eyewitnesses to Jesus and the things that he did. We've got abundant eyewitnesses in the Scriptures. They were not only eyewitnesses, they were earwitnesses because they heard God speak from heaven when they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matter of fact, it happened more than one time that, that God spoke from heaven in the Scriptures. But they heard it with their own ears. Now, I alluded to this a few weeks ago because as we were doing a series about fear not, we talked about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration one day, and I told you that then. I'm going to repeat it again. <laughs> it blows my mind what Peter writes next. Peter's just said we were eyewitnesses. That's a good thing. We were ear witnesses. We heard what was said. We heard the Father speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son. But then Peter says this, but you have something more sure than us being eyewitnesses, more sure than us hearing God speak from heaven. You have the prophetic word of God. Man, that's a huge statement. And what he's really saying is this, an eyewitness is fine, you know, hearing is, is fine, but you've got the evidence of things that were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago that have been fulfilled in exact detail. And that ought to convince you clearly that the Bible's true, that what we're saying is true. Let me give you one instance of that. The method of crucifixion had not even been thought of by the Roman Empire as a method of execution until hundreds of years after David described it in minute detail in the Psalms. If there's nothing else in the Bible except that from prophecy, that's enough to convince me that the Bible is true, the prophetic word of God. And there are prophecies upon prophecies upon prophecies that proclaim that it's true. Now, they'll bring up the next slide real quick. And I think you, do you have that in your notes? I think it is. Okay. 
But if you've never watched that, you ought to go and watch that because that can be very helpful to your faith to, to, to watch that and get a fuller explanation. Question number three. Does the Bible really claim to be the Word of God? We're talking about it today. We're saying the Bible does claim to be the Word of God. Does it really claim to be the Word of God? So we're going to look at claims in the Old Testament and claims in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are multiple times that the Bible says things like the Lord said or, or God spoke or, or the Word of the Lord came about. There, there are also many times in the Old Testament when the prophets themselves speak in the first person as though they are saying the exact words of God. In the New Testament, there are places in the New Testament where the disciples in the New Testament quote those prophets in the Old Testament or King David in the Old Testament as though what those prophets or King David said in the Old Testament were the words of God. Over and over again, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. In Psalm 19 a moment ago, we saw that the Bible was perfect, sure, right, pure, true, and righteous. There are all kinds of references in the Old Testament that refer to the Bible being pure, or like silver, or or like gold, or, or being flawless. Psalm 119 verse 89 tells us this, Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. If indeed that is true, I believe it's true because of my faith. But if indeed that is true, forever, O Lord, your word is fixed in the heavens, I'm telling you something, God's word is fixed, and no matter what anyone wants to do to attack it on the face of this planet, it's never going to tear it down and never going to do away with it. His word is fixed in heaven. Isaiah talked about the Bible like this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There are things that just by the natural order of things in our, in our world. We, we're seeing a fear of it right now in our peach growers and things because we've had warm weather and everything started, you know, blooming out. Now we've got cold weather and some of the blossoms are starting to die away because of this event of cold weather. But there's never any event that'll ever happen that will cause God's word to pass away. Jesus himself said this, and once again, if Jesus said it, you better hold to it or you're attacking the deity of Christ. Jesus said not one jot, not one tittle, not one little bitty thing would ever pass away from the word of God. So the Old Testament clearly, clearly proclaims to be the word of God. If we were to call to the witness stand, as we used that as an illustration a moment ago about an eyewitness, if we were to call the writers of the Old Testament to the witness stand, they, one after another, would get up there and say, yes, the Bible is God's word. That's the testimony of the writers of the Old Testament. What about the claims of the New Testament? Three times, I alluded to this a moment ago, but three times in the Bible, in the New Testament rather, you, you hear God speak from heaven. One was a baptism of Jesus. One was the transfiguration on the mountain that we just read about a moment ago that Peter alluded to. And the third time, Jesus was being really concerned and troubled at the prospect of his coming crucifixion. But he was desiring most of all and anything else that the Father's name would be glorified. And God spoke from heaven, the Father did, and said, I have glorified it, talking about his own name, and I will glorify it again through what Christ is about to do. Look at several other instances in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37 to 38. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual. So in other words, if anyone kind of claims they know God, they know things about God. He should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are commandment of the Lord. Paul is saying, if someone's wanting to claim to be spiritual, if they're wanting to claim to have biblical knowledge, if they're wanting to claim to be a prophet... They also need to do this. They also need to acknowledge the things that I'm writing, that Paul is writing, were the command of the Lord. And he says, if anyone does not recognize this, you shouldn't pay attention to that person. You shouldn't recognize that person if they do not confess that what Paul was writing is indeed the Word of God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of God, but as what it really, or not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul, once again, in Thessalonians is saying, what you've received from me, you believed it wasn't the writings of men or the words of men, you believed it was the word of God. 
1 Peter chapter 1, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is grass and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls. He's quoting what we just read a moment ago from the Old Testament. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news. In other words, this is the gospel that was preached to you. There in that one swoop, Peter's saying this, the Old Testament is true and the gospel is true. And he's tying the truth of those two things together. Revelation 22, verse 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about that passage that I just read in Revelation. I've had people before want to tell me that if you have any other translation other than the 1611 King James Version Bible, then you're sinning, you're wrong with God, and, and you're in trouble here because they believe that another translation has taken away the words of, of this book. Sorry, I went to Bible college. And in Bible college, I found out the Greek manuscript existed before the 1611 King James. And the Hebrew Old Testament existed before the 1611 King James. And that's not an attack against the 1611 King James. I believe it's the Word of God. But I believe God is going to preserve His Word all generations. And I believe God also, as translators, translated other translations, has not changed the truth of the Bible at all. You know, word change is important. Here, here for you ladies... We're told in the New Testament, you can win your husband by your chaste conversation. What do we think that means in this day and time? My wife's going to talk me to death till I come to Jesus. Conversation. It's what you think of it, isn't it? Conversation. That's not what it meant at all. It meant the manner of your lifestyle. But you see, because our culture doesn't use the word conversation like they did in Old Elizabeth in English... More modern translations say you can win your husband by the manner of your lifestyle. Does that make more sense to you? Huh? So he's not giving a warning about other translations. Matter of fact, the context of this has to do with the book of Revelation itself, not the whole Bible, although I believe it can be applied to the whole Bible. But I just read those verses and want to point out to you that, that the Old Testament and the New Testament both give a testimony that the Bible, in fact, is the Word of God. Now, once again, a moment ago, I told you when Jesus uh, claimed it was the Word of God, we had a dilemma. We also have a dilemma here. Because if the writers of the Old Testament say this is the Word of God, and, and the writers of the New Testament say this is the Word of God, we have a really strong dilemma, and that means this. You can't pick and choose once again. You have to believe it either is the Word of God, or you have to believe they're a bunch of Charles, Charlestons and they lied to you. They're just a bunch of fake writings that it wasn't true. 1,500 times, 1,500 times specifically, the Bible says that God spoke and that this is the Word of God. Those writers that wrote that, if that's not true, why would you believe anything else they said? You understand what I'm making, the point I'm making? It's either true or it's not. And if the writers of the Old and the New Testament both say it's the Word of God, then we better accept it as the Word of God because you cannot afford to start picking and choosing. Let's take this section out. Let's take that section out. Let's take this section out. We only believe what makes us feel good. Next question is this this morning is the bible merely a collection of various types of literature or does it have a cohesive unity a lot of people in a secular society a lot of liberal theologians want to say well it's just a hodgepodge collection a bunch of fairy tales have been collected over the years that's that's really all it is 
Some of it looked like poetry. Some looked like history. Is it just kind of some type of collection of various types of literature that people's put together over the years? Or, or instead, does it have a cohesive unity about it? Because I believe the Bible from the front to the back has a cohesive unity that teaches about Jesus Christ. Now, not any verses of Scripture I'm going to give you here, but we're going to look at some important stats that you need to know. And this is important stuff that you need to have in your own mind and in your own heart because it can increase your faith as a believer, but it can also equip you to maybe help someone else get over their skepticism and come to Christ. We have nearly 6,000 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Over 10,000 Latin Vulgate copies and at least 9,300 other early versions. So there are approximately 25,000 copies of portions of the New Testament in existence. Now, if you to understand the value of that statement, I want to show you some other stats here. People in a secular society... Liberal theologian, philosophers, whatever it may be, they, they, they will, they'll accept Plato's writings. Well, well, sure, we know Plato was real, and we know what he, what he wrote. There's only seven copies that's available of Plato's writings. And the earliest one occurred about 1,200 years after he died. The accuracy of it, there's no way to even gauge mathematically any type of accuracy because there's so few copies and because it was so many years later. Julius Caesar wrote his Gallic Wars and that's taught in colleges and everything else. There's only 10 copies. The earliest one was a thousand years after when they viewed the original would have been wrote. And the accuracy, once again, you can't put an accurate number, percentage on it because there's so few copies. And it occurred, the first copy, so many years later. Aristotle, you've heard of him before. They talk about him in school. They teach things about him in school. There are 10 copies available of his writings. 1,200 years after his death is when the first copy can be dated to. Once again, you can't factor in the accuracy because of the few copies and because of the years involved. Homer's Ilya, 643 copies are known to exist. The earliest copy was 500 years after when they think the original was written. The accuracy of the copies because of the shorter time and the number of copies they have is rated at 95%. The New Testament, 5,685 copies of portions of the New Testament. The earliest one is less than 100 years from the time of Jesus. And mathematically, they can compute that out to an accuracy where they compare those documents to an accuracy of 99.5%. I think that's pretty impressive, don't you? Now, I hope you showed up this morning thinking, I believe all of it, because I do too. (laughs) I believe it's all God's Word. But in order for us to make a logical argument with people who want to deny the Scriptures, we need to know things like this to where we can show the, the, the great accuracy of the Scriptures in comparison to the accuracy of other documents from antiquity, other ancient writings that culture accepts all the time, but they don't want to accept the Bible. And there's many more copies of the Bible, and the accuracy level is much more significant for the Bible than anything else of the New Testament. Is the Bible merely a collection of various types of literature or does it have a cohesive unity? The method that the copies were made is significant for you to know about. The men that were scribes that would copy over the Scripture, they were trained from a child to be a scribe. It wasn't some Tom, Dick, and Harry one day thinking, you know what, I think I'm going to start copying Scriptures. They were trained to do it. It was their duty to copy meticulously and preserve the Scriptures. After they would copy a parchment, a section of a parchment, they would count every letter, every syllable, and every word. 
Now, I've written a lot of documents in my life, and I've had to copy over a lot of things. I don't remember ever sitting there and me deciding, I'm going to count every letter and be sure it's mathematically correct to the one I just copied. But that's the way they copied the Scriptures. The percentage of any kind of error they have ever been able to find does not affect any doctrine or any doctrinal truth or the true meaning of the Scripture. Every now and then it might have been a misspelled word or something like that, but nothing that affects the integrity of the Scriptures. The unity of the message of the Bible is something else that ought to be really, really important to us. Because in the Bible, we've got a unified message from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible about God's redemptive plan for mankind. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, when God gave that first prophecy about Jesus coming, when he looked at Satan and he said, you're going to try and bruise his heel, he's going to crush your head. From that point on, the Bible is about the coming of Jesus. From that point on, it's God giving out his redemptive plan for mankind. The whole Bible is a unified story about Jesus Christ. Now, I think we included these stats in the notes too because you need to know them to where you can share them with someone. But to me, this is significant as all get out, folks. The Bible is a library of 66 books written by 40 different authors who, by the way, didn't have the same background. Some were kings, some were shepherds, some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, some were prophets. One was even a doctor, physician Luke. The Bible's a library of 66 books written by 40 authors across a period of 1,500 years. The the things the liberal theologians or the the secular society wants to try and convince people. No, what happened was a bunch of men got together in a dark room smoking cigars and they all decided we're going to fool everybody and we're going to make this look like it was all written by different authors and we're going to give it all the stories that it has and we're going to tell the good, bad, the ugly of what happened and everything else which normally human nature doesn't do that. You leave out the bad part. That's what they want you to believe. But historically, we can prove that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years across three different regions and cultures, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, using various styles of writing, historical narrative, laws, prophecy, wisdom, proverbs, songs, poetry, parables, etc. Yet here's the kicker. Through all that, over the span of all those authors, in the span of all those years, it has a unified message. That ought to increase your faith to where you can believe the Bible is indeed the Word of God. The last thing we need to talk about is simply this. The logical reason to believe the Bible, and that's what we've been talking about all morning. The logical reason to believe the Bible calls for a decision. The logical reason to believe the Bible calls for a decision. All this information isn't just for information. It's to confront you with a decision. The, the fact that 1,500 times, the Bible says 1,500 times that, that God spoke. And all the other evidence that we've been talking about this morning, that that ought to challenge you to use even logical reason to believe that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. It ought to call you to two main decisions. The first one is a decision concerning the truth of the Bible. The, The evidence screams out that the Bible is God's Word. An argument that I made earlier, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't say, well, I, I like this part of the Bible, but I don't like that part of the Bible. I like Jesus, but I don't like that. You, you can't pick and, and choose. You have to accept the logical evidence of the Bible's own testimony as being the Word of God. Or you have to write it off as a forgery. You, you can't accept... Only the parts you like and reject the parts you dislike. The the Bible either has to be entirely trustworthy and true as it claims to be, or it's a bad book. Some people want to say, well, no, it's a pretty good book in some sections. No, if it's a bad book in any one section, it's a bad book. 
He made this point near the end of the chapter, the first chapter. Erwin Lester puts it like this. If the Bible is wrong 1,500 times, in other words, the 1,500 times that it says God, this is God's word, God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. If it's wrong 1,500 times, then this falls like a house of cards and there's no value to it. You can't have it both ways. You need to be faced with the fact that this is God's word. And the second decision you need to be confronted with and faced with this morning is this, a decision concerning your sin and God's offer of salvation, offer of salvation. That's what this book is about. This book tells us we've sinned. This book confronts us with our sin. We come face to face with our sin. This book brings us face to face with a real God that our culture wants to believe doesn't exist. This book brings us face to face with a real God that loved you so much, he took 1,500 years writing you a love letter. That's a pretty good love letter, isn't it? To take 1,500 years to write you a love letter. You're confronted with the fact that he loved you enough to send his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins, and that through faith in him and faith alone in him, you can have everlasting life. And if you fail to accept that, you'll face God's judgment for all eternity. All the evidence of the Bible we've talked about this morning calls for a decision, yes, about the Bible, but for a personal decision about your own life, your sin, and God's offer of salvation. I want to warn you, though, and I'll try to remember to do this every week. We've looked at some very logical, I think, reasons why we ought to believe the Bible this morning. And throughout this series, we're going to look at some logical arguments why you ought to believe the Bible. But here's the warning. And and he points it out, Erwin Lutzer points it out really clearly in his book. The warning is this. Logic is fine. We need to logically consider the truth of the Bible and the truth about Jesus. But you cannot come to save in faith in Jesus Christ just by logic. Look what Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. Jesus talking about himself. He's seen the Father. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus clearly says, you can't come to the Father except when he draws you. Now not only would I give you a warning about logic. Don't think that you can just reason your way into your salvation. It takes faith. That's what the Bible says. It takes faith. But that's not only true, but you need to be concerned about this. At a point in time, you feel the Father drawing you to salvation. I wouldn't be saying no because that's the time that He's drawing you. Amen? That's the time that He's calling you to Jesus. I hope this morning, if you're someone that came to church at Day 3 Church today, and you came in as a skeptic, and you're really skeptical about the Bible and what it says and about God and Jesus and all that stuff, I hope somehow you heard some logical arguments today that will start convince, convince you, start to convince you to think about the claims of Scripture. If you're going to be an honest skeptic, and you see, here's the deal with a lot of skeptics. If you're going to be an honest skeptic, in order to be an honest skeptic, you also have to consider the Bible and read it <laughs> and consider his claims. If, you're, if not, you're a dishonest skeptic. You're not even looking at the evidence. So if you came today as a skeptic, I hope maybe you've got a few answers. If you're here today knowing Christ as your Savior, I hope your faith has been made stronger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. You didn't have to do that. You chose to. You revealed yourself to mankind. You, you've sent us your love letter the Bible. 
You've given us an instruction manual for life and for eternity. And Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for anyone that may be a skeptic that stood on the outside of faith because they've listened to culture, they've listened to to misleading statements that have been made by, by people that are claiming it's science. Father, I pray you help both with what's been said today and through this series to help convince skeptics that they need to honestly consider the possibility that you're real and that the Bible's real and that Jesus loves them and that Jesus died on the cross for them. Father, help us that already know you to be strengthened in our faith. Help us to be more built up through this series. Help us to be equipped to go out beyond the walls of this place and to be able to stand for you and the truth of your word without worrying about the faith that we have because of all the other evidence we can also give a lost world around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.